in the city of Ephesus, pretty major city in the Greco-Roman world. And uh, toward the middle of his letter, chapter 2, verse 11, he writes this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. In April 1992, my family went on a holiday vacation to California. It was an awesome trip. We spent a week in LA and then we hired a camper van and went up around northern California, circled back down to LA and then came home via Hawaii. I was 13. Brilliant trip. Trip of a lifetime for me. Uh, except that the week before we arrived in LA, a black truck driver named Rodney King had just been assaulted by white police officers. And those police officers had just been acquitted. And that acquittal sparked massive widespread rioting and looting and arson right through downtown LA. Infamous incident now in LA's history. And we arrived right in the middle of all that, just as the, as the riots, the LA riots, were all starting. And we were staying, thankfully, out in Anaheim, so we were a little way away from all that, but it was a pretty terrifying time. And, and I remember um, Dad had the, the map of LA spread out on the hotel floor, just trying to figure out you know, where things were happening in relation to where we were. And all of the channels on TV just had rolling coverage of these riots. It was pretty scary. In the middle of all that, my parents decided that probably the safest place for us to go during the LA riots was going to be Disneyland. So off we went. We spent two days in Disneyland, right in the middle of it. And here we, we were like in our own little bubble, just enjoying Disneyland while LA was burning down around us. And, and there's one ride in particular in Disneyland that uh, if you've been there, you know it's a, it's a log flume ride called It's a Small World After All. It's this gentle, you know, rolling um, log flume ride, and, and you go through this tunnel, and there's little dolls representing all the nations of the world. And they're all singing their own songs, and they're all, you know, singing together in, in unity and harmony, and it's this wonder, wonderful expression of racial and cultural tolerance. And I think I was too young at the time to appreciate the irony of here we were singing It's a Small World After All, and, you know, we've got the LA riots happening, all of this racial tension and conflict and strife outside. 
And I wonder whether, in some way, that's a bit of a parable on the modern world, that, that we love to talk about unity and we love to talk about everybody getting along, just like Rodney King, that, that, that quote from him, can't we all just get along? It sounds so simplistic, it sounds so easy. But the reality is that our world is increasingly marked by tribalism, by division, and by social fragmentation. You saw it in London last year with the riots there. Just a complete mob mentality, complete breakdown of order, and absolutely no respect for authority, absolutely no respect for other people's property, other people's businesses, other people's livelihood. No sense of social cohesion or commitment to anything greater than yourself. You see it at the moment in the States with the Republican primaries and the attack ads that are being run between candidates within their own party. Um, Anna and I saw some ads like this at a local body level while we were in the States, and they are vicious, and they are personal. And this is only the Republicans trying to figure out who their candidate's going to be. The general election campaign hasn't even started yet properly. American politics is more partisan, I think, than it's been in a long time. And you see it here to different degrees in different ways. Every year Waitangi Day rolls around. We all wonder what's going to happen and it seems to surface the subtle racial tensions that still exist in New Zealand. Again, it seems to open that old wound again. And for both Māori and Pākehā, the language seems to become a lot of us and them language. And walls seem to go up and fences seem to be built. We live in a pretty divided world. We live in a world where lines are drawn between all kinds of different groups of people who are at best just drift apart from one another and at worst become openly hostile and aggressive towards one another. And this is nothing new. This has been around as long as human beings have walked the earth. It was around in Paul's day. And as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, one of the big divides in his day was the divide between Jewish people and the rest of the world. Jewish people in the first century had a pretty low view of people from other nations, other cultures, because they understood themselves to be God's chosen people. So they just had one word that they used for everybody else outside the Jewish family, and it was Gentile. That word is not specific to any one culture. That, that encompasses a myriad of different cultures and languages and nuances, but they just slapped that word on everyone else. So there really were only two categories of people, Jew and non-Jew. And Jewish people would do all they could not to eat with Gentiles, not to do trade and commerce with Gentiles, not to live in Gentile neighborhoods, not to socialize with Gentiles, because they understood from the Old Testament scriptures that not only were they unfavorable towards Gentiles, but they understood that God himself didn't like Gentiles. Because as Paul catalogues it here in chapter 2, Gentiles were outsiders. They were rank outsiders. They were foreigners to the promise. They were foreigners and strangers to the covenant of Israel. They didn't have the law. They weren't part of the chosen people. The guys weren't circumcised. They weren't in. They were outsiders. They were cut off and separated from God. And Paul even says, without hope in the world. In every way, they were on the other side of the fence from Jewish people. And Paul just builds up and up and up the, the striking contrast between Jew and Gentile so that there is a huge contrast between that and what comes next. 
where he says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what follows here is just one of the most stunning expositions of the work of Jesus on the cross that you will find in the entire New Testament. Paul says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace. That word goes back to an old Hebrew word, shalom, peace. Jewish people would wish shalom to one another when they met, when they greeted, when they shook hands like in a, in a setting like this. They'd wish each other shalom. And it doesn't just mean that you're wishing the other person warm, fuzzy feelings of peace. You're wishing them well-being across every area of their life. Financial shalom, relational shalom, physical shalom. And especially shalom between people and groups of people that may have been estranged. Shalom is about reconciliation and it's about healing. It's about restoring relationships that have been ruptured. And Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace. He is our shalom because he embodies within himself perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with others. And as our shalom, here's what Jesus has done. He has made the two one, verse 14 still, he has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. See, often we think about this dividing wall of hostility as being a wall between people and God. Between that vertical relationship, there's this barrier of sin there. And that's true, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's not talking about a barrier between people and God. He's talking about a barrier between people and each other. He's talking about the dividing wall that was between Jew and Gentile. And he's saying that what Jesus has done in his flesh on the cross has brought that wall down. Which means that the work of Jesus on the cross is not just about saving your soul so you can go to heaven when you die. It is also about reconciling you to one another. Reconciling brother to sister, parents to children, friend to friend, husband to wife, neighbor to neighbor. It's all the work of Jesus. It's all the work of shalom. The whole thing. Salvation in the scriptures is not only personal, it's also social. It goes as broad as human relationships go. He's brought the dividing wall down and he has reconciled us not only to God, but also to one another. His purpose, says Paul in verse 15, was to create in himself one new humanity. We'll come back to that. Out of the two, thus making peace, there's that word again, and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I love the way that Paul describes the work of Jesus, not just as, you know, Jesus made peace out there somewhere, not that Jesus just kind of brought these groups of people together, but that he did it in his own body. Don't you love the picture of Jesus on the cross, within his own flesh, reconciling men and women to himself and to one another? Somehow he's doing that in the very act of his crucifixion. I love the way that the theologian Miroslav Volf describes this. He says, At the heart of the cross is Christ's stance of not letting the other remain an enemy and of creating space in himself for the offender to come in. Isn't that beautiful? Creating space in himself for the offender to come in. And we could extend Volf's thinking maybe to say also creating space for the offender to be reconciled to the victim for offenders to be reconciled to one another. It all happens within the person of Jesus. And the result of this, Paul says, is that Jesus has created 
a new humanity. Literally a new man. But the concept, of course, is broader than one person. He's created a new humanity. Isn't that a great name? Isn't, wouldn't that be a great name for a church? I mean, seriously, if I plant a church, if, if we ever rename our church, I'm putting in a vote for the new humanity church. Wouldn't that be cool? New humanity church. Because that's what we are. That's the point. We are a new, not just a new community, not just a new social club, we're a new humanity. Brought about through the work of Jesus on the cross. And this new humanity, that idea, it points you backwards to God's original intention for human relationships. That we should see in the church what relationships were supposed to be between human beings before sin messed it all up. And it also points you forward that we are supposed to be here within the church, a foretaste of the new humanity that God's one day going to create. A reconciled community of shalom. At the end of history, he wants us to be a little taste of it now. So that people, when they look at our relationships with one another, the way we treat each other, the way we love one another, the way we forgive one another, the way we bless one another, people should be seeing a little taste of what God is one day going to pull off in this huge global scale when shalom will cover the earth. We're a taste of that new humanity right now in the present, a taste of God's future. So it's no surprise that this new humanity is supposed to be characterized by the same word that Paul keeps using, shalom. That we are to be a community of peace. And I know it's a lofty idea and I know that it's a compelling vision, but the concrete reality of it is really, really hard. In the first century, what this meant is that Jews and non-Jews of whatever stripe had to be prepared to sit together in a worship service, take communion together, be in each other's lives and worlds and pray for one another and walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we are so removed from that culture, we gloss it and we don't think that's any big thing. We know oh, Jews and Gentiles coming together, that's nice, isn't it? But to get your head inside what that actually meant, picture this. A racially mixed church of black and white South Africans at the height of apartheid. And you're starting to get close to what Paul's dealing with here. There's a staggering division between Jew and Gentile. Incredible animosity between these two groups. Absolute abhorrence for one another. And here they are worshipping together. It's actually happening. The whole point that Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians is because it's a mixed church. It's a racially mixed church. Jews and Gentiles, they're doing it. So if you want to argue that this is just not possible, there's just too much keeping us apart, and there's too much social fragmentation, and there's too much division, try telling that to the church in Ephesus. Because they did it in some of the most adverse circumstances. And it wasn't just along cultural lines. Then they started doing it along class lines. Slaves and free in the same church. This was unheard of. There was all kinds of mechanisms in society to keep those two groups well apart with slaves serving their masters. And yet here they are, slave and free in the church, blessing each other as equal members in God's body. Male and female, same deal. In a heavily patriarchal society, you have Paul writing to the Galatians, there is no longer male and female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. 
because all are one in Christ Jesus. That's the church, right? That's the new humanity. That's what it's supposed to look like. It's an ecumenical gathering of Protestants and Catholics from Northern and Southern Ireland coming together, worshipping the same Jesus Christ and committing themselves to the peace process. That's the church. It's a racially mixed church of Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda, worshipping together and loving one another. Radically different from what happens in the world. It's a church in the middle of the 20th century in America, embodying what Martin Luther King dreamed of, black and white children playing together. The church should be out ahead of all that stuff. We should be leading the way. So often we're following. So often we're just perpetuating the same divisions that are going on in our culture and our society. The church should be getting out in front of that and saying, we are a new humanity. We're going to model something different to the rest of the world. The church is going to be a sign to the powers and authorities that the cross of Jesus Christ has brought about something different. And a new day has started and a new kingdom is here and it's marked by a new humanity that must and can look different. So we've got to think through what does this mean here? What does this mean? I mean, what does this Ephesians 2 stuff mean on the shore in Auckland? And you start thinking through the varying dividing lines that there are within our city in the various ways that we separate ourselves from each other. What does it mean to be this new humanity here? Act Party supporters and Green Party supporters. <laughs> Can you coexist? And anywhere in between, whatever political affiliation you are, are you willing, without any hint of patronizing nonsense, to be brothers and sisters in Christ? to sit together around the Lord's table and share communion and genuinely love and embrace each other as equal members in God's family without any political point scoring. Someone pointed out to me the other day that when I preach, I've got this proclivity towards the left. And they wondered if this was political. They, you know, they, they, they mentioned that you know, apparently I just look more at you guys than I do at you guys. So I've been consciously trying to remedy that. I just want you to know this is not political, okay? You know, it don't, we don't care who you voted for in the last election. It's not, it doesn't mean that faith has nothing to do with politics. I don't believe that's true. But it means that faith doesn't believe in partisan politics, where we only hold one party view and encourage you to vote for only one party or person. That's up to you. And whatever political stripe you are, we've got to allow our loyalty to Jesus Christ to trump our loyalty to any particular party or persuasion. Right? What about age divisions? I think our society does a pretty good job of keeping age groups apart sometimes. We marginalize old people. We patronize them and condescend them. We marginalize young people. We criticize them and write them off and dismiss them. Shouldn't the church be a place where that looks different? And we may, from time to time, provide particular programs for people of particular ages that serve those particular people. But we want to be, above all of that, a church of the generations. That's what I love about these services on Sunday. It's a church of the generations. We've got all the generations here. We never want to be a church that just caters to one demographic, just serves one type of people. We don't want to be 
a homogenous age group of people. We want to be a church where older people are blessed and enriched by younger people, able to offer wisdom and experience and the advantage of what their lives have taught them. We want to be a church where young people are included and embraced and not pushed away and told off but brought into the center of the church community and blessed by people from other generations. We want to be a church where young families can learn and love families who are a little further down the track from them, where singles and marrieds can be in the same life group together without it being weird. We want to to do these things. We should be able to do these things because we're a new humanity. And what about different cultures? Auckland is a very multicultural city. But sometimes it feels like it's multicultural in a siloed kind of way. That different cultures just tend to drift apart, find their own communities, find their own clusters, and not have a whole lot to do with one another. We've got to swim upstream from that here. And it doesn't just mean being willing to embrace people from whatever nationality who come through the doors. It means even within the life of our church, not just drifting into our own little silos. And I know it's comfortable just to be culturally with people who are like you, who get it, who have that same sense of history, who are on that same team and have that sense of affiliation. But we've got to take intentional steps towards integrating with one another fully. And I'm I'm talking to European Kiwis here as much as anyone else, towards assimilating fully. It means literally sometimes taking some steps to get into conversations, to get into life groups, to get into serving teams with those who may be culturally unlike you and being blessed and enriched by your differences. Because the church should be a place not where culture just fades out and becomes insignificant. With due respect to Bono, I don't think the final vision is that all the colors bleed into one. I think the vision is that all the colors shine out even more brightly, but they're celebrated, and that cultural diversity is something to affirm and to recognize, not something to try and dilute. We want to be a church that celebrates the myriad of cultures that we have and takes real steps towards fully embracing each other. And we could go on and on and on, and you might want to explore this in your life group. What are the divisions? What are the dividing lines? What are the things? Breastfeeders and bottle feeders. Come on. Can you coexist in the church, or is that asking too much? You know, homeschoolers and state schoolers, right? Mac people and PC people. Is that even, have I gone too far? All black supporters, uh, Springbok supporters. I can't even say wallaby. It's too much. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So, you know, some of these are more trivial. Some of these are very, very serious. And whatever the lines are that divide us, We want to be a church, we must be a church where your tribal identity never trumps your identity in Jesus Christ. But over all of the the team loyalties you may have, and there's no problem with those, but over all of them there is the canopy of Christ, the cross of Christ that brings us together, binds us together and makes us a family. It's what it means to be a new humanity. And the result of it is this, as Paul describes it at the end of this passage we've just read, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. That's a total reversal of the language he's used about five verses ago. Before it was all outsider, foreigner, stranger, cut off, separated and far away. Now look at what he's saying. Now you're no longer foreigners and strangers, you're fellow citizens. And he's saying it to Gentiles, and he was a Jew. He's saying you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. 
That's what the new humanity looks like. And that might mean you need to put down some prejudice that you've held towards those other types of people. It means you may need to let go of some stereotypes that you've had, some caricatures that you've had. Maybe it means repenting of that this morning and committing yourself afresh to being part of this new humanity, which expresses what relationships, human relationships, are really supposed to look like. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite things about meeting in the gym here is that we get to get up and take communion. It's lovely because you, you see other people on your way to the table, don't you? You, kind of, you almost literally bump into them sometimes. And I think sometimes, you know, what, what other gathering on earth would bring this group of people together? You know, what, what other context? Different cultures, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels, different stories, different traditions, different religious traditions, theological persuasions, whatever it is. What other gathering is going to bring this bunch of people together? It's not going to be the auditions for American Idol. You know, what is it? (laughs) This is unique. It's the church of Jesus Christ that can bring a bunch of diverse people, broken people, to acknowledge they desperately need a saviour and feast again on the body and the blood of Jesus, nourishing ourselves with the grace that we need to put this into action and commit ourselves to being this type of church. So let's protect that unity, friends. The unity of God's church, not our church, God's church, because it is precious and it is valuable and it is rare. Let's commit ourselves to expressing all the time and and, and increasingly this new humanity and being a reconciled community full of of the shalom of God. Let me pray and we'll take communion together. God of peace, we thank you that you have made peace with us. We were so far from you, God. We were, just as Paul describes, the Gentiles, without you and without hope, but you've reconciled us to yourself. Even more than that, God, you have reconciled us to one another. And I pray now that you would give us the courage to tear down the dividing walls between us and whoever the other might be, whoever those people or that kind of people or that group or whatever, Lord, whatever perceptions we've got of those others, Lord, we ask that you would help us break those walls down. Make us one body, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord and Father of all and one Jesus Christ through whom we've been redeemed. We ask that the cross of Christ would pull us together and create level ground on which we might all equally stand. Make it so among us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.